What's up, friends? Welcome back to the Dark Waters. I'm your host, Josh. Uh, it's Wednesday, uh, halfway through the work week. Uh, I hope the week's been good to everyone. Uh, I got no complaints here. I was able to get out on the water today. Um, it was weird, man. I woke up uh, probably about 5.30. Uh, got there, you know, went and looked at the truck. Uh, my, my kayak was already packed, man. It was like there was frost covering it. Uh, temperature was like 32 degrees. Uh, got to the water. The water temps were like 42, 43 uh, got up to like 46 and then eventually got to 50, but man, it was a rough morning, man. I was, uh, you know, I, I was targeting smallmouth. Uh, you know, I was, I went deep, you know, found some rocks, blah, blah, blah. I just could not find a bite today. Uh, I struggled. And I always struggle when it's this cold, man. I, I really do. I'm, I'm uh, at the end of the day, like I pretend I'm a New Yorker, um, you know, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan or, or whatever, but, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm originally from Florida and you can tell, um, you know, I just, I, I struggle when it gets cold, but, uh, I don't know. Tomorrow looks better. Uh, you know, it's gonna stay, it's gonna stay a little bit warmer over the night, and hopefully tomorrow uh, it'll be better. I'll, I'll find a bite tomorrow. I got a good feeling. We'll see. Uh, but anyways, I uh, hope everyone else has had a pretty good week. Hope you guys are uh, ready for the weekend. Um, I know there's some tournaments coming up. I got I got a bunch of tournaments. I'm doing like three tournaments in two days. Um, but uh, you know, if you guys got some tournaments or whatever going on, uh, hit me up, tag me, message me. Uh, let me know what's going on. I love to hear from you guys. I uh, love you know, love talking to you guys about some shit. Uh, just hit, you know, let me let me know. Um, do me a favor. I, you know, I'm always going to do it, but you know, I'm going to take a little bit of time and thank the people who support the show. Uh, first person I want to you know thank and you know give a shout out to is uh, Outdoorsman Coffee. Great coffee. Owner's David Cruz. We've talked about him before. Uh, you know, veteran, fellow kayaker. Support your own. Uh, get coffee from him. Uh, also, Xstone Lures. They've been taking really good care of me. Got great plastics. I love their products. Uh, get yourself, uh, you know, get yourself some plastics. Use uh, discount code uh, capital D capital W fifteen, and get yourself some plastics if you need them. Uh, if not, just go check them out. Um, other than that, we don't have anything else. We'll just jump right into this. Uh, my next guest, we just need an introduction. Uh, Chad Hoover, very important person uh, in the sport of kayak bass fishing. Uh, owner of Kayak Bass Fishing. Uh, we all know what that is. I'm sure most of us have participated in one of those events or not. But uh, I was really happy to get on the show. Uh, you know, a lot of changes with COVID-19, a lot of uh, rescheduling, a lot of cancellations and, uh, you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, we talked about what they're doing to salvage the rest of the seasons and, you know, just some of the, some of the changes that are going to be having the KBF in the future. Uh, so it was good for me because I just didn't – I don't know what's going on. Like, you know, with all this COVID-19 shit, like – I just, you know, wanted some clarification and just get to know the guy. Uh, I, this is the first time I've ever talked to him. Um, but you know, we had a great conversation. Uh, went down some rabbit holes, talked about some shit I didn't see coming, but I'm glad we did. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, I understand that, you know, you know, either like chat, you love, either love Chad Uber or you don't. Like, uh, I know there's a lot of controversy, uh, you know, a lot of things going on in the scene. Uh, we, you know, it was talked about, but, uh, you know, I really don't give a shit about none of that. I mean, it was it was cool to talk about it, but uh, you know, that's not really my problem. Uh, you know, I just I like the guy, I like the sport. Um, I, I love tournament fishing, so whether it's KBF, OB, uh, my local chapters, uh, whatever, I just I like to get out there and fish. I really don't have time for the uh, the other shit. Like if I don't like something, I just won't participate. Uh, so I know there's going to be some controversies while I bring that up. I know some people are going to be. I, I just know what's going to happen. Like I, you know, I see some of the shit out there. I know there's going to be some shit talking, and that's just fine. You know, I, I, you know. It is what it is. Like, uh, you know, you got to say what you got to say and, uh, you know, feel free, uh, you know. But uh, I don't know, whatever, dude. I'm, I'm rambling too much, man. Like, look, you're going to like this episode or you're not, but uh, I'm glad I did it. 
I'm glad I got to get to know Chad, and I look forward to talking to you again. So that's all I got to say about that. I hope everyone has a great week. Uh, get on the water, catch some fish, uh, reach out to me, let me know what's going on. But that's it. I'll talk to you guys soon. Ciao. Hi, Mr. Hoover. Welcome to the Dark Waters. How are you? Pretty good, man. How about yourself? Good, man. Uh, 2020, a lot of weird stuff going on, uh, a lot of big changes and everything. Uh, but I hate to do this to you before we go any further. Like, obviously, most like probably like 99% of my, the five people that listen to my show know who you are. Uh, but just in case anyone who's new to it, if you don't mind, just kind of just doing a, a quick intro, just who you are, what you do, and like, what's going on in your life. All right, man. Yeah, so I'm Chad Hoover. I'm the uh, founder and president of kbf or kayak bass fishing kbf for short um i host a couple tv shows one on sportsman channel uh and world fishing network um kayak bass and tv on world fishing network and not right kayak fishing on sportsman and we're actually moving to fox sports network this year as chad hoover fishing so um yeah that's me i'm a luckiest dude in the world got a great life a great wife um you know uh, i tell people all the time i didn't look into the best job in the world but i have the best job in the world it takes a lot of work a lot of time effort and energy i work a hell of a lot harder to make a hell of a lot less money than i can make doing other things that i have <laughs> experience and an education in i've spent uh, 20 years in the navy in aviation uh <clears throat> aviation is one of the most stressful industries yeah. ever because everything is little chicken the sky's falling everything can kill a bunch of people and i was in combat sar so i was in like the stressful side of the stressful side and then after i got a commission i was a pilot and training for a couple of years i got mpq'd for a sinus problem which stands for not physically qualified to fly redesignated to manage maintenance and then went into the logistics side and so the only thing more stressful than aviation is aviation logistics because everybody slows way down for passenger safety nobody gives a flying flip about cargo they just need it to go right so you're put in some pretty compromising situations where you've got airplanes that shouldn't be flying but gear that's got to get somewhere to save somebody's life so you just kind of do what you got to do right um and so walking away from that a lot of people go man i don't know how you do everything you do with uh with kbf but honestly this is this is half speed compared to what I did for 20 years of my adult life in the military. And it was the only thing I knew, you know, I joined the Navy at 16 and the delayed entry program went active at 17 and I retired at 37. So like, I didn't know anything else. I'm 45 now. I've been retired for, I think I was eight years in September. And, um, yeah, I would be two years away from that 30 year retirement, which is like a hell of a lot higher retirement. I could have retired, retired. Yeah. But instead I'm working, you know, however many hours there are a week minus about three a day. So, yeah. Yeah. So you're still pretty busy, though. Oh, my God, man. And a lot of people are like, hey, are you enjoying your time off? And I'm like, time off. We actually are having to redo six months worth of work from last fall in a month and a half in the spring 
So it's like trying to change the tires on a car while it's going down the road. You know what I mean? Right. So. Yeah, I, I definitely want to talk to you. I had a chance to talk to uh, Jason Gardner the other day, the uh, the Northeast director, uh, and you know, we talked about a little bit about something that, that's, that's changes, and that's really what I wanted to talk to you about. But before we do that, uh, just because you know, I've heard a lot of stories, I've talked to a lot of guys that have known you for like the past you know five eight years who've been competing in the KBF for five years. I've seen all the videos, and so I, I kind of know a lot about you, and I've, and I've heard stories. But how did you like like really get into fishing and get in? Like, and, like, what was like kind of the evolution of the uh, the KBF uh, series that you started? So I've been fishing, you know, since I can remember. My grandpa on one side worked in the oil field, and then he retired from that and went into aquaculture, which is raising catfish on farms. Uh, in the state of Louisiana, when the soybean market kind of tanked, you know, in the 80s, a lot of farmers turned their soybean fields into catfish ponds and raised catfish. And so aquaculture was a big deal then. And actually, my grandpa on my mom's side and my grandpa on my dad's side both, both worked in that field. Uh, and then my grandpa was a crawfisherman. Like, he caught crawfish and sold them on the side of the road in a big enclosed trailer. He would set up a boiler and a couple tables, and he hired one or two people to sit out there and put them in the box, put the crawfish in the box flat, throw some corn and potatoes in there, wrap it up, and hand them through the window. So he had a drive-up crawfish thing, and then he worked the catfish farms um as well and then on my grandpa's side on my mom's side he also was a foreman for a big operation one was in Catahoula Parish in Jonesville Louisiana one was in Concordia Parish in Faraday Monterey Louisiana and uh uh so I grew up on and in and around the water so our family was from an area that flooded our part of Louisiana is well everything in Louisiana floods right but like where I live, backwater was what they called it. it was a big deal, uh, which is funny with the name of your podcast, like Dark Waters. Like, I grew up in that dark, but right. muddy backwater. I mean, there was times we had to take a John boat to the bus stop. You know what I mean? So <laughs> um, uh, so I grew up, I, like, I can't remember not fishing, you know. Right. Um, my grandpa on my dad's side, who actually just passed away in November. Um, I'm sorry. Good Lord. He just passed away last month. Um, right. He was the, the influence for me. Um, uh, he got in real bad health in November, then he passed away last month. But he um, he uh, he was the biggest influence because he was a big, um, we call him crappy where I'm from, uh, also known as white perch or sakala. Uh, he was very big into that, and everybody from where I'm from know him for that. And so um, I just grew up around it, man. And then I joined the Navy at um 16 on the lady entry went in at 17 uh my first tour i was in so much intensive training i'd go fishing with buddies here and there mostly bank fishing or if a buddy had a boat i'd go fishing with them and just kind of didn't get to fish as much as i wanted to for about the first three and a half four years and then i got stationed in norfolk virginia and uh it was on like i started yeah. fishing there uh the best combination of freshwater and saltwater fishing anywhere because you've got the ability to catch monster black drum, cobia, monster bull reds, and sharks, and tall tog. And I mean, you could just catch so many species. And then you've got fisheries with 10 pound bass an hour away in, in Farmville on Briary Creek and Connor and Smith Mountain Lake and some of those places, which is a little bit further away. World class river fishing with the New River, the James, um, Roanoke River, and some of those places. And so, 
what happened was I didn't really get into kayak fishing my first tour because I was just so heavy into training. I was a night vision goggle and aerial gunnery instructor in helos, so I was flying all the time. My schedule was crazy because with night vision goggles, you have to chase the moon. Right. So I went fishing with buddies who had boats, and, and the really cool thing about Virginia Beach is there's so much good bank fishing. You can scratch your fishing itch by fishing off the beaches, going wade fishing for redfish in the flats and things like that. Um, but I was in Corpus Christi, and I was going to school at night because I wanted to get a commission. And it was my first shore duty tour. And uh, I was running guided trips. Back then, you could buy a guide license. You didn't even have to have a captain's license, like 69 bucks. And um, I was running these guided trips on the beaches, driving up and down the beaches, fly fishing for speckled trout, redfish, skipjack, ladyfish is what a lot of people call them. Um, and then bonita, little tuna that would run the surf, and jack crevel, anything that would run the surf, kind of mixed bag fishing. And then I got it for speckled trout, flounder, and redfish in the flats. And uh, I came across this guy that was uh, had a kayak that he was using to paddle baits out um, for shark. And so it was a little ocean kayak frenzy, a little nine foot, about that wide. <laughs> and this dude was like real little. And he would catch Jack Crevel or Bonita. And um, he would cut the heads off of them and he would wire them with like five or six hooks in this big thing. And He'd put that in the back of his kayak and put a rod in the rod holder and paddle it way out, you know, four or 500 yards out, drop it and then paddle back in real fast and set the drag. And then he had a captain's chair that was welded to a hitch mount to go into his Jeep. And he would sit in that captain's chair when that rod bent over, he'd lock it up. And then when the fish or the shark would start to get to where it looked like it was going to spool him, he'd loosen the drag up a little bit on this lever drag, get in the truck and drive down the beach following the shark. And uh, he, he would tie these flags on his line every um, 10 or 12 feet when he was going out so that as he as that line was being pulled through the water, as he got it up, he could see the flags. And so it was really cool to watch his little operation. And uh, we were standing there and I was guiding these two Asian guys that didn't speak English, uh, a very little English, just broken English. And they were tourists and they wanted to go fly fishing. And so they booked me and um they were enamored by the fact that this guy was shark fishing. So th they said, stay, we stay. I was like, so you want to stay and watch it? They're like, yeah, we want to stay and watch. And they didn't care about their guy to trip anymore. So this guy had showed him pictures. He, he didn't, we didn't have cell phones back then. He actually had right. Polaroids in his truck and was showing them to him. And they're like, stay, stay. So this guy hooks up with this fish and he goes, Hey, can you grab my kayak? And he takes off. So I'm like, well, shoot, man. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know. How am I going to, so I just threw the kayak in the back of the truck and we drove down the beach and followed him. And, uh, and, um, I had a little flats boat that I got in my flat strips with. And so we watched this whole operation unfold and I was like, man, that kayak is awesome. And I was like, I grew up fishing out of P Rose and we exchanged numbers, you know, back then you had to write it down. You couldn't just punch it right into your <laughs> phone. We exchanged numbers. And like a week and a half later, this guy calls me and goes, Hey man, you know, I know you really like that kayak and I, I need to sell it to pay my rent. And I was like, uh, well, man, I only got like a hundred bucks. He's like, I'll take it for the paddle, the PFD. And I would throw in a rod. And I was like, no, no. I mean, like I only have a hundred bucks. Like I don't have a hundred bucks to spend on a kayak. Like I only have a hundred bucks. He's like, dude, just bring me what you can. And if you can bring me the rest by the end of the week, I'm like, dude, I don't get paid for like nine days. <laughs> I tell this story in different versions. I'll give you the full version. 
I actually had a hundred bucks. I went to the ATM, but I forgot about the fact that the bank takes out like their admin fee. So right. it put me to like 97, but you can only pull money out in increments of 20 in ATMs. Right. I don't know if you still can do that. Cause my wife handles all that now, but like back then you can only pull it out in increments of 20. So I could only get 80 bucks out. Right. So, so I go to the guy's house. I'm like, dude, this is 80 bucks. This is all I got to my name. I can't even get the other 17 out of the bank because, you know, the, the ATM thing. And plus, it just charged me $3 to get this crap out because I didn't go to my actual bank because you were telling me to hurry up. So uh, so he goes, I'll take it. You owe me 20 bucks. We'll call it good. Gives me a pen, four forty, um, a Shimano 50D a lever drag reel. And two pin boat rods, uh, ocean kayak frenzy, a little ocean kayak paddle, and this little crappy PFD that he had for 80 bucks. So I threw it in my center console boat and started taking it out, and I would jump out and go scout shallower water that I couldn't get to. And as luck would have it, I booked a client who brought a person, but I didn't let you just book two people. Like you had to tell me you're bringing an extra person. So I took my boat to work and I had this guy booked for a 4 p.m. to dark trip. And it's a little five hour trip. And I was, you know, just making college money. So I didn't care. And I was fishing. Right. So right. and I'm 20, 21, 22 years old. So the guy shows up and he's got his son with him. And I'm like, oh, man, I didn't really anticipate you bring in a third person because I left my kayak in the boat on the side of the center console. I said, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take you guys to a really juicy flat. I'll put you out and let you wade fish. And then I'll stake the boat out and I'll paddle the kayak back to you and I'll help you out. He's like, yeah, no problem, man. And I said, and I won't charge you for the extra person. So he was super stoked. So I take these guys and I put them out in the boat and I get them out. You get out here and I go about 50 yards, let the other guy out. And I'm telling them to cast out to this edge. They're just throwing gold spoons and real easy red fishing. Right. So I paddle up and around and I go up about, 200 yards upwind from them and I find this school of reds in um, like six inches of water, maybe not even six inches of water, just enough to cover their backs, but their fin was tracing out of the water. Now, I will preface this and say that I was very successful at guiding very quickly and I was very young, but I flew around in a helicopter all day during the day for my day job mm -hmm. over the top of these flats and I would find the fish. And I'd mark them either on my little <laughs> old Garmin E-Trek um, GPS back in the day, or I would just yeah. know know the spot. And I'd go back out there that day, and it wouldn't take me 30 minutes to find the school. And we would just bang them. So I had a no fish, no pay guarantee. And uh, I was the only guy back then that was doing that in that part of Corpus, and the other guys hated my ass. So <laughs> what I did is I would find these fish real quick. So I paddle up around this school and the school was further up in the flat than I thought. And I had kind of let my guys out a little further back. So I paddled up around this school. And as I was paddling forward, I'm new to kayaking, but this thing is real tippy. I get to where the wind blows me kind of sideways. And I'm like, whoa. And I sent out this pressure wave and I could see the ripple and it hit these redfish, which are only about 25 feet from me. And they spook, but they don't spook spook. They just bump is what I call right. it. I was like, hold on a second. And I, I didn't want to cast and hook up and bow up and my clients are 100 yards away. And right. I'm like, look at me. So I paddled forward a little bit more and I waved at the guy with my paddle. I took my paddle apart and waved at him like a like an airplane director, you know. He get, I get his attention 
and I, I basically whistled and he looked at me and I said, when I whistle again, cast, he's like, gives me the thumbs up. So I paddled forward and I just bumped these redfish a little bit at a time. And I pushed them up and I whistled at that guy and him and his son both cast and they both hooked up. So I kind of paddled up to catch up to them and they're fighting these redfish on light spinning rods. And there's three or four more redfish with them. So I pick up my rod and throw in there and I hook a redfish off the back of one of the guys who's fishing and I land mine, put it under my leg and the kid's like still fighting his and he's got five fish following his fish. You know, they'll follow it. The right, yeah. I cast over there and they each caught one fish and I picked a fish off of both of them's line. And then I, I got out of the kayak and stood up on the bank up on the berm, kind of like on the sand dune so I could see. And I was like, dude, they're right there. Y'all come up on the bank and go down about 20 yards and go back out. So we did that. Then I got in the kayak and went around the other way and bumped the fish back to them. Well, they turns out, this is kind of how lucky my life has been. It turns out those guys are really good friends with the guy that owned a website called corpusfishing.com. And back then those were the only way you found out information. There was no Facebook, right? There's forums. Forum, there forums. And so he had a yeah. forum called corpusfishing.com. Well, these guys go in there and post up like this review and they title it hardest working guide in Texas. And next thing you know, my phone's blowing up. I get home and my answering machine is full. So if you kids that are listening and don't know what an answering machine is, that's when somebody <laughs> called you and your voice, their voice was recorded and you couldn't check it until you got home. Right. And then you had to try calling them back and then you would get their answering machine. Then they would call you back and get your answering machine. You couldn't text. So anyway, I, my phone blew up. I, I had my answer machine was maxed out on messages and I had missed calls. Remember star 69? Yeah, I sure do. Yeah. Yeah. So you could see that I had all these missed calls and I was like, holy crap. Mm -hmm. So then it got to where I could just kind of do my own. I could book as many trips as I wanted. If I ever had a crappy trip where we didn't catch them good during the day, I had these uh, canals with green lights in them where the fish would just congregate on them. So if I ever had a bad trip, I would tell the clients like, hey, we're going to go over here and limit out on these lights real quick. And it was visual and they loved it. And um, so that's how I got started. I got started by running into a guy who had a little kayak. I had fished out of P-Rose growing up. So as soon as I saw him fishing from a plastic kayak, I was like, oh, man, like that's it. And then from there, I bought a ocean kayak drifter from a shop called Wind and Wave uh, in Corpus Christi. And then I met the folks from Ocean Kayak and I helped design a kayak that's not even in production anymore called the Prowler. Um, and I was going to school at Embry-Riddle for aeronautical engineering. And I mentioned that to this guy from the shop and he was like, oh, man, the Ocean Kayak guys are coming. Next thing you know, I'm involved in that. And that's kind of where my um, where my spark was lit for the design part of it. And so, right. you know, with my career in aviation, a lot of the things that I brought to the table, like slide tracks and gear tracks and adjustable seats and all that kind of stuff all comes from my background in the aviation industry. Um, you know, like I was the guy that introduced Ram to kayak fishing because it was an aviation and a military product, but nobody had used it on kayaks before that ultimately led to a really good relationship with yak attack, which helped, you know, birth yak attack. I was there for the, uh, I was there before yak attack was an embryo, you know what I mean? Kind of a right. thing and helped, name probably the first 20 products and be involved intimately in the design and um that's what i love the most in fact i've got a prototype kayak sitting in my driveway right now that when we're done here i'm headed to the water so to me i got away from some of that by trying to be everything to everybody with the tournament series yeah 
Um, I'm so stoked now that there's Hobie, there's Bass, there's more uh, series out there that can take it to that more professional level that a lot, a lot of people think intuitively like I'm going to have heartburn with that, but I don't. I, I have heartburn when we can't work together and when we can't unify the rules so that it doesn't because I feel like it's kind of my responsibility to protect the integrity of catch photo release because I've worked so hard to get it to where it's at. And some people don't understand that certain rules are there and they're written in either in blood or they're written in, in uh, you know, from experience of stuff. Um, but like, like you ever watch those movies where people are uh, planning a bank heist and there's the one guy that's the lead bank robber is talking about they've got lasers, they've got heat sensors, he's telling you what all of the what all of the uh, things they have to beat are. Right. Well, we have a whole we have a whole bunch of things at KBF that you have to beat that we don't talk about. But it's written into the rules to avoid those things needing to be used. And so when someone new comes in to catch a photo release and they're like, oh, doing that is stupid. Like I had the rule of not pinching the tail because we had already caught somebody cutting the tail off and pinching it and using the second tail to get an extra inch. Well, I'm not going to come out and say, hey, we don't use the pinch tail because people can cut the tail off and hold the other tail and slide it out. Because now if you're not using my rules, I just taught every unscrupulous person out there how to cheat. And right. we had we used the, the closed mouth rule because people would dislocate the jaw. People would grab the bottom jaw, put their knuckles against the top jaw and pop the jaw out and get an extra half inch you can get a half inch on a 17 to 19 inch fish you can get three quarters of an inch on a 20 a 20 to 22 inch fish and on a 22 or inch above fish you can almost get an inch and a half and so people fought me on open mouth for six years seven years and now it's pretty well universally closed mouth but the reason for that is if you close the mouth you can't close the mouth if the jaw's dislocated Right. So people just thought I was being anal and trying, but I didn't want you to be able to not close the mouth. The other thing is if the mouth is closed, you have to push against the bump board to keep it closed. What right. people don't realize is that because of the parallax of the photo, if you open the mouth, you can scoot the fish away, hold your camera up and you take the picture. That fish's jaw can actually not be touching, but because of the angle, it looks like it's extended past the line at the bottom and the contrast. So right. you can get an extra half inch out of the fish that way. So yeah. we spend as much time trying to figure out how to beat our system as we do writing the system so that we know what to prepare for. Um, so little stuff like that, you know, little stuff that allows us to catch the things that nobody else catches or help verify it when somebody else has an issue. And then uh, the one thing that I've been a big advocate of for the last two years and talking to, you know, people about is trying to make the evolution towards catch video release. Yeah, um, I've heard you talk about that a few times, and, and, I'll, and I'm curious. Everybody is like, "Oh, it's not going to work." I did a thing on the KBF members only page where I said, "Respond with one word to this catch video release," and it was like too hard, difficult, why, complicated, not necessary, like all these things that you know. It was about fifty-fifty. A lot of people were like, "The way of the future," you know. That, but the thing is, I ran some tests with some people that are trusted people, the people that have been either fishing for a minute or been fishing for 10 years. I said, hey, go out and time yourself videoing or catching and photographing and releasing a fish and tell me how long it is. And by and large, it was way longer. Drop the phone. No it was way longer than everybody thought it was. 
And then I said, now do me a favor and go do the same thing for um, video. And it was way shorter than everybody thought it was. So what my plan is, is to introduce video. First, it's going to be catch, photo release, video verification, meaning or video backup. I highly suggest you video the release of your fish in case there's any question, in okay. case there's any issue. Then the next wave, I say 2022, is we make it to where the tournament management system has to have a catch, a photo, and then a video upload next to it. What that's going to do is that's going to avoid all of these tail angler people out there that spend five minutes trying to angle the tail just right to get that extra. So now you've got to take the photo, but then you've got to do a video holding the phone, covering over it. Well, you can't do the whole tail manipulation thing in video, or you can try, but you're going to have to show it real time. And then, right. then, then ultimately three years, maybe four years down the road, we go to catch video release because I've been doing it and I've had people doing it. And you hear people think that it takes 45 seconds to a minute to take a fish. It's actually pushing closer to four minutes for catch photo release because of everybody trying to milk everything and make sure everything's just right and taking multiple photos. And some people put the fish back in the water and some don't. And so I'm trying to even protect the sanctity of our process so that when we start getting bigger, we're going to get more scrutiny. And when we get more scrutiny, people are going to go, yeah, catch photo release is so much safer, but I put my fish in the live well within a minute and these guys are over there videoing their fish and taking pictures for 10 minutes. Right. It took me, it takes me on average less than 20 seconds. And so I just want you guys to count your head real quick. So I catch the fish, I put it on the board, I hold my phone up and I say, the fish's mouth is touching the zero mark and it's closed. My hand is not in the gill plate or the, and the dorsal fin is up. Tail is 20 and a half inches. There's my identifier. Pick the fish up, release it. Boom. That was eight seconds. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's yeah. literally all you got to do. And so we can get to the point to where catch video release. You don't have to sweat as much stuff. You remember mouth, gill, tail, identifier, release. That's it. And I'm going to make a, an acronym out of that. And if you say that acronym to yourself over and over, you get conditioned to where you get a consistent release. You know what I'm saying? You say yeah. mouth, gill, tail, identifier, release. You see what I'm saying? It's right, simple. Right. Yeah. And then what we do is then we get all this video content that we can use for promotional purposes. I mean, shoot, if you're going to upload the video, why not say, hey, all right, fish's mouth is touching, hands not in the gill, uh, 20 and a half inches, there's my identifier, here's the safety release. You turn the phone around and say, big shout out to Bonafide Kayaks for helping me kick butt in this tournament. <laughs> now you've got an interactive way to give sponsors a return on investment. You're creating content that we can use in TV shows and videos to help promote you and the sport. Yeah. And so I just think it's the wave of the future. I don't know that it's ever going to be what we do for everything. Right. But I definitely think it's going to be something that we – what my game plan is to do is to introduce it in like an event like the 10 where it's smaller and it's more manageable and then ease it into trails a year later and then ease it into, you know, yeah. your, your challenges after that and so on and so forth. Well, well I mean, I kind of I agree with you just because uh, like, I'm doing the uh, the – I'm sorry, the Paddle and Finn Spring Madness Live thing they're doing, which is kind of like a, a takeoff on what Scott's doing. Yeah. But it's – but, I mean, like, you do see, like – especially for the smaller events. I'm not sure about the KBF trails or the uh, like the national champion when you get those like those big events. But, like, we're using our cameras live to measure the fish 
Uh, and we can also take pictures of the fish if we need to. And I, I think, you know, when, like, you know, GoPros becoming more able to go live and, you know, just, just the use of, like, phones and everything in general, that I think the picture, the, the video is going to be a little bit easier. Anyway, cause a lot of guys like, that are doing the, the Five Live or the, the – so that doesn't paddle and fit are doing. We're actually recording it on, on video anyways, and it seems to be working good. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's a few niches that we got to fix um, and things like that, but it, it doesn't seem to be doing well and, and, and quicker, too. Than uh, trying to get it because you're right. I, no matter like how much I love the fish, I do take my time trying to get that picture just right because I do want. I, it's a competition. I want to get that uh that whatever I can get out of that fish. So how long do you think it takes you to photograph a fish? Uh, anywhere between a minute to four minutes probably. Yeah, it's actually I did almost a hundred people, and you know you got to depend on their honesty. But literally, I told them. There's not going to be anything incriminating. I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to set a timer on your phone, start the process, and then don't rush. Just do what you would normally do. And then at the end, flip your timer over and be like, oh, man, it was pushing four minutes. Average. Yeah. So there was, there was some that were like, dude, I'm embarrassed to even tell you this, but I took I had, I had took like seven minutes one time. Yeah. It, but your, your adrenaline's pumping. You're fired up. you got money on the line. You don't even realize seven minutes is a lapse. And then I tell that yeah. dude. Yeah, next time you do that, try holding your breath for seven minutes. Right. You know, and see if you can do it. And then, um, but the idea behind this is that when we started Catch Photo Release, everybody told us it was crazy. Now, let me tell you how crazy Catch Photo Release was when we started. Disposable cameras. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones. Right. So what we did is we would go buy disposable cameras, and we would issue them in a Ziploc bag with a number on the camera. That was your camera. And then when you came in... You turned in your camera, and we gave you a claim ticket, like a coat check. We drove all the way to the closest one-hour photo, had all the photos developed, drove back and sit there and sorted out photos, wrote out numbers, added them up, created a leaderboard, and then put them in order. It took four hours. Now, then we went to digital cameras, which cut it down to like two and a half hours. Now we're using, you know, Turnity X, and there's a number of other, you know, tournament management apps coming into the game right now, but... The process is through your cell phone, so everything is getting done so much faster. Uh, last year, through KBF, we got down from uh, 40 minutes down to about 18. Uh, this year, the first couple of events, we had one snafu with the California event with just some data stuff, uh, and Joe took longer to get that done, but we're averaging less than 11 minutes to finalize standings. Um, I've got a little something, something up my sleeve right now that I'm working on to – not only make it to where the judging is faster, um, but make it to where the, the competitors and the fans are involved in the process. Nice. And that is going to be user-generated or, or community-generated judging with a concept that's, that's nobody's done yet. And, you know, that's kind of what I consider my job is to always be pushing the envelope. Uh, everybody were naysayers with everything that you've ever done. People don't like change. And so when you say the catch video release, it's 50-50. But, but once it's there and it's in place, people will realize how much easier it is. And then it'll be the way that we do it. Just like now we use digital phones. And back then we used disposable phones. It'll just be the new way, you know. Right. Um, but, man, this the, the judging is the biggest burden on KBF and on the community and on all that kind of stuff. And 
I also think that when you force the anglers who are not participating in a tournament or anglers that are participating in another tournament or in that same tournament to look at other photos, it actually educates you quicker, much more quickly, because you're looking at all of these photos and you're looking for the things that are wrong, which make you more cognizant of the things not to do wrong when you're taking your own photos. So we're yeah. working on a concept now where the photos don't get judged unless somebody challenges them. And the way that the challenge work will be streamlined. And once it's challenged, it can't be challenged anymore unless it's disputed and then it'll be disputed formally. So it's going to engage the anglers more. It's going to get more viewership. It's going to give the anglers who are catching fish a better deal. And we're even looking at something. And as soon as I say this and people hear this on your podcast, it's going to light it all up. But I'll just go <laughs> ahead and roll this. I'll go ahead and roll this grenade into the room. Um, I'm seriously considering a penalty for inaccurately entering your fish. And, and here's why I'm saying that. Right now, if a fish is right on the edge, if it's 23 and a quarter, but it doesn't quite make 23 and a half. There is no incentive for an angler to not just put 23 and a half. The way they look at it is like, ah, I'll put 23 and a half. And if the judge doesn't think it makes 23 and a half, then they can ding it. Right. So there's, there's no, there's no, there's no uh, penalty for that. There's no deterrent. So now we're judging five times as many fish as we should have to, um, because people are just being greedy. But if we say, if in an instance, the judge has the discretion that if you entered a fish that you knowingly, if you, you can just clearly look at it and it doesn't even come close, then you get an additional quarter inch penalty for inaccurate entry. Nobody's right. done that yet, but we judge 40, 50, 60,000 fish a year. And nobody takes that into account how much time that takes. Well, let me so if we can... Let me ask you this, Chad. Like, when you're going, like, you're making all these rules, and I, you know, I, I follow. I don't really participate in any of the, the stuff that really goes on with, like, the the, the, the drama part of, uh, you know, kayak bass fishing or, or any, you know, I just don't. It's not my thing. But I also hear it and I have to listen to it. But, we, you know, when you're coming up with these rules and you're coming up with these things and you're getting the naysayers, you're getting the haters, like, we're, like, like to me, it seems like it's an easy fix because, like, you know, like, I really don't care in the sense because like, whatever rule you decide to make, that's the rule that I'm deciding I want to play by or I don't want to play by. What do you think? What do you think the uh, the pushback really comes from? Because like, especially now there's there being well, there's being more option now. It's like there's more options. Like you don't have to fish in the KBF if you don't want to. You can go fish here. If you don't like if you don't like the motor rule, you can go fish the Hobie event. They don't have motors. Like like like, like to me, it's just it's, it just makes sense to me. And maybe it's just because of all the things I've done in life that like like these are rules. These are rule sets. You either want to play by these rule sets or you don't. But you have a choice. But to sit there and uh. You just really complain and like bitch about it. It's like it doesn't really make sense to me because you don't have to do it. You don't have to participate. Like what, what, like you you do these things because you have a like this is yours. This, you have a personal interest in it. This is your uh, this is your organization. The people that are in the organization, the people who are actually investing in it. You guys kind of get to say so because you guys are the ones who, who run this shit. But the people who don't, who are just they're either participants or they're not participants. What do you think? Like they're like like what do they really want? Like what do they think is perfect? I think most people think whatever's current is perfect. And people are resistant to change. So anytime you change something, they're like, oh, the, the, the initial reluctance in anything comes from change and resistance to change. By and large, we don't want to change anything. If right. I could never change the rules again and it would just be all perfect and everybody would submit their fish and score it correctly and don't cheat and do all that. Oh, my God, I could go fishing more. Right. right. But the rules are written because of 
the the attempts to exploit them, right? You should never have to say you can't bend your measuring board to make the fish look longer. But when that happens, you got to write the rules to accommodate it. That's what every rule was written based on is right. somebody's attempt to. I mean, technically, if, you, if anybody wanted to play that game, when we caught the guy cutting an inch and a half out of the board four years ago, nowhere in anybody's rules did it say the measuring board may not have the middle removed to make the fish look longer. It's just common sense. And we have a catch-all clause that covers a lot of that and a fair competition clause and all that. But we don't write these rules because we want to. I'd much rather not have to deal with any of it. I'd much rather not have to be the PFT police. I yeah. grew up in search and rescue, and I kind of look at it like this. If you don't want to wear your seatbelt and you don't want to wear a helmet and you don't want to wear a PFD, I don't have to compete with you for Social Security. But the fact of the matter is, and you can remove yourself from the gene pool way sooner than uh, me and you ending up in a hospital next to each other in a nursing home, and I got to wait on your bedpan change to get my bedpan change. Personally, the Chad Hoover, if you want to know my not right opinion on it, Darwinism. Let it do its thing. But the fact is, I am charged with running an organization that is trying to set the standard. And if you set the standard, you have to be the standard bearer. And you can't say that uh, PFDs are optional if you're trying to be the standard bearer. You right. can't say, I'm not going to implement that rule once I know that the opportunity to exploit it is there. So we have to be first. And pioneers get arrows in their back. That's how it works. It'd be really easy to sit back and let somebody else make all the mistakes and then me just Monday morning armchair quarterback it or counterpunch or do all that. And um, But that's not how it works. That's not the burden of leadership. You don't get to sit back and say, well, I'll wait for, I'll wait for somebody yeah. else to decide. Well, it, it, it reminds me, like, really, like, because, you know, like, I was in the military myself, too, and I was there for, like, the the beginning of the war all the way to pretty much the ending of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I remember, like, you know, the SOPs and the rule and, like, the policies – and the other thing we did was very small. And then in, 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 like each deployment I went to, they became they became really thick and thick and thick. And it got to the point where now it's like none of us really knew what the hell we were doing because there's, there were so many different policies or SOPs for every single situation. And it, it always came because every situation has happened by this time. You know, after you know five six years in it, you know, we went from being like walking out with just our flat jackets and our helmets to now we got these shoulder pad looking things and we got uh, our crazy extra armor on the Humvees. We got the, the, all the all the different equipment we got to use, all the different maintenance we got to do. It, it went from being like just like, just an infantry guy to like where like we had to there's just so much more to it where it was it was frustrating, but it, at the same time it had to be done because either life were being lost, equipment was being lost. Those uh, rules are written in blood, brother. Yeah, and the, the, the way it has to be. It's not just the life, but it was like you know the, the waste of equipment, the waste yep. of resources and things like that. And so it, it happens. I mean, like we, we all, you know we wish things could be simple. But they can't because someone breaks the rule. It's not really they would break the rule. The rule wasn't there in the first place, and common sense wasn't taking it in effect. And then now, now we got people who are complaining. You know, it just—it's not good. Yeah, so things, things have to change. We call, you remember what we called those guys in the military? The Bravo Foxtrot. You know what yep. that stands for? Yep. But, yep. Yeah. So we have a lot of Bravo Foxtrots in this industry that have come into the game that effed it up for everybody. So. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have to write rules to the least common denominator. Like right, I should exactly. not have to have a rule that says you have to wear your PFD. It shouldn't. That should be common sense. I tell people all the time, PFD stands for prevention from drowning. And if you don't wear it, it stands for pretty freaking dumb. Yeah. But I still have to police it every week. There's somebody who broke the PFD rule. And 90% of the time, I got to argue with the person that 
gets the DQ that says, well, my state doesn't require it. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. We do. Why didn't you see the rule? That's not my fault. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, uh, well, why is the Coast Guard doesn't say I have to have it? Yeah, the Coast Guard writes their rules to the least common denominator. And there's a lot of job security built into the way the Coast Guard writes their rules. You do realize that, right? People, (laughs) you do realize that speed limits are written in small towns so that they can write tickets, not just because of the safe operating speed. So anyway, the point is, I would rather just not have to deal with all this crap. I'd rather just go fishing. But I I was the dummy that got out front and started this because I wanted it to be there for kayak fishing. Now that there's more of it for kayak bass fishing, um, I can back off. We started off with 56 trails, went down to 44, then went down to 41. Now we're at 30. uh, No, then we went down to 39. Now we're going to... uh, 18 this year, plus the six regionals, that'll be 24 total tournaments, plus the championships and putting this up around 31 events. Um, now we're going to somewhere between eight and 10, plus I'm consolidating the national championship, trail series championship, and challenge series championship. And, you know, here's my biggest problem, bro. I used to try to satisfy everybody, but what I finally figured out I was doing is I was actually catering to the vocal minority. Because the, the vocal minority are the people that do the rules based on me, me, me. Their, their right. chorus has one, their song has one chorus in it. Me, 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 me. They don't look at what's good for the sport, for the community, for the bigger picture. It's all me. I don't get off work until Friday evening. So I don't think trails should be on Saturday. They should be on Sunday. Uh, okay. Do you think if I run every trail on Sunday, my attendance would be a third of what it is? We also have to stay in business jerky or the, otherwise there won't be anything for you to compete in um all the blowback on the 21 day challenges there's literally a guy on the members only page and if i'm calling him out and he gets offended so be it but it says why couldn't you just do three to four days three to four days is plenty how do you know yeah how do you know how much work there is what are you basing that off of you do realize at any given time we have 39 to 42 state challenges and when the events were all the way up to the end 30 percent 40 percent of the fish for the whole month were entered in the last two days and then when the next one kicks off 30 to 40 percent are entered in the first three days so you got 60 percent of your fish entered in the last two days of one trail and the first two days are challenge series and then when it takes us 10 days to do payouts and everybody's belly aching oh can't believe these payouts ain't done it takes 40 minutes to do a payout by the time you look up the person Verify the W-9, double-check their PayPal address, make sure you got the right account because several people got four accounts in Turning X. Like by the time you do all that, it's a process. Now, when you've got a thousand people, I want everybody out there to do the math on this so you can better understand what we actually do at KBF. When you have a thousand people, it's actually 1,200 this month in the challenges. And at the end, you've got to pay out 25% 25% of that. Jeez. And so what is that? 300 people, right? Yeah. 207. Yeah. Multiply that by 30 minutes and tell me when you have 270 times 30 minutes. That's a hundred, that's a week of solid eight hour a day work. And that's if you only did that. Right. So this whole argument that like when we went to the 21 day challenges, some guy wrote a big narrative about how 
well, that would give me one more weekend to fish. And as a blue collar man, and you don't respect the blue collar man because you took our weekend away. No, dude, I'm giving you 11 times more than two days and 21 times more times than one day. It's three weekends. If you can't catch enough fish in three weeks, just don't enter. So I'm taking on your philosophy, what you just said. I used to cater to the vocal minority, and I would change the whole world around for what a few people said. Now we bounce it off of our, our partner group leadership panel for them to shoot holes in it. That gives us the reasonable man theory, and then we implement it. The new way forward for me is here's the implementation. We worked really hard to vet it as best we could. You can shoot holes in it now that we've released it all you want to. Unless I ask for the opinion, hey, what do you guys think about this so I can build it in? Once we release it moving forward, uh, that's it. If yeah. you don't like it, you can vote on not liking it with your dollars. If you yeah. don't like it, don't yeah. Because, I mean, like, the, the thing is, like, I'm not saying it's going to have that way, but, like, let's just say, like, people, a lot of people didn't like it, and, and, and it is controlled by dollars. You, like the dollars is probably going to help you dictate the next decision you make, right? Because I mean, you are a businessman. This is a business. If if something's not profitable, something's not making like financial sense. I imagine you would change your ways before you just listen to people bitch about it, right? You have to. Otherwise, yeah. what kind of moron am I to run the company in the ground to where then all the other people who are happy with it don't have anything? Exactly. Our job is to provide opportunities for the the community. Yeah. And if we can't provide opportunities, we've not done our job. Well, the number one thing that we've got to start doing, I've got to start doing a better job is I had to learn the power of no, which means I was able to say no to certain things because I said yes to so many things that I spread myself so thin that I couldn't really accomplish what I needed to accomplish. It's actually um, we went to church one Sunday and this was the sermon. The pastor's sermon was like the power of no. And it like it hit me like a ton of bricks. My wife was elbowing me. Christy was like taking notes to show me afterwards. And <laughs> but it's literally the mantra was if you try to be everything to everybody, you'll end up nothing to no one. Right. And and that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks because I was trying to be so there's a couple things going on. For one, I was trying to be everything to everybody. And then I was trying to justify myself to the, the naysayers. And then I was dealing with kind of a, not kind of, a, I was dealing with a really bad uh, set of, uh, they say delon delayed onset PTSD is what they called it, only because it was, I, I say it was delayed diagnosis. I was an asshole for eight years, 10 years. So I was already dealing with it, just didn't know it. Um and, you know, it was really brought up to me by having to go to a counselor because of something my daughter went through. And because of that, I had to face some stuff I hadn't faced before. And once you kind of pick that hole in the dam, it opens up crazy, you know. Right. So uh, so um, I, uh, I, I, I dealt with that simultaneously with trying to be everything to everybody simultaneously with being internally frustrated, mad, pissed off, confused, and, you know, divergent from my own self in a lot of cases. So, you know, thankfully I got the best wife in the world and she's kind of uh, pointed a lot of that stuff out to me, which helped me acknowledge it, you know, kind of like they say that, you know, admission is the first step in recovery or whatever. Right, right, right. Uh, and then I, I had a couple buddies that were 
you know, accountability buddies. Uh, one of them being a guy from Heroes on the Water named Jason Austin that was a big like, hey man, you're way different. Something's going on. You need to talk to somebody. And um, I'm not a big talk to somebody kind of guy, right? 95% of the stuff that I was involved in or did was stuff that you just, you have a hard time talking to somebody that also wasn't involved in it and didn't do it about because you right. think they can't understand it, you know? Um, but I had to finally realize, you know, seeing hundreds of bodies piled up ain't normal. Seeing yeah. people dead on a regular basis when you're doing SAR, which really isn't search and rescue like a lot of people think as much as it is search and recovery. You know, right. you probably right. you probably pull out 10 bodies to every one you save, you know. Right. Um, and then when you do the combat side of it, there's the there's that piece of it that, um, you know, you medevac a lot of your friends that get killed. You respond to accidents with your buddies that crash and you you watch aircraft go down that go under in like two seconds and you're sitting there and helpless and all that stuff that, you know, for me, I joined when I was 16 years old. My dad was a raging alcoholic when I was a kid. My house was chaos. Going into the military was actually less chaos. So it's kind of like the analogy I made in the beginning, going from aviation to even as crazy busy as I am with this is yeah. is like half speed. I mean, going to the military, um, it was like, man, I wonder if we're going to get my butt, we're going to get our butts kicked today. Well, growing up, I didn't have to ask myself that question. I knew at some point during the evening or night or whatever, I was going to get my butt kicked. My dad right. was just that guy for, you know, he's, he's, he's uh, been recovered now for almost 30 years. Uh, our relationship is like, you know, we, we live apart. So it's not like, you know, he's not over at the house for dinner every night because he lives in Georgia and I live here, but our relationship recovered substantially. I spent more time at home um, after I joined the military than I did before that. You know, yeah. I tried to stay in the woods or gone or hiding from my dad 90% of my life. But going to the military was easy. Um, even some of the toughest stuff that I ever did. You know, I, I remember looking at an instructor who thought he was going to break me. And I said, bro, you can't you can't do to me what's been done to me in my life. This is like you're throwing sand on me and making me roll around on the ground. Whoop the freaking do. <laughs> you didn't punch me in the face. You haven't kicked me in my rib cage, and you haven't put a cigarette butt out on me. Until you get to that level, this is not that. And I can remember, like, that's where I actually learned the earn the name. Not right is some of the training I went through. We'd go back to the barracks or go back to the locker room or whatever, and people would be looking at me, and I'd be like all jacked up, fired up, and they're like, "What the hell is wrong with you, dude? dude you are not right." Um. So yeah, so but I've had to find balance, man. And by finding balance in my life, it made me realize how absolutely crazy the pace that I was trying to keep with KBF was. Yeah. I've had friends for eight years telling me, dude, there's no way what you're doing is sustainable. I'm like, BS, watch this. You know, Craig Dye, I uh, love that guy to death. Uh, used to live in Nashville and we would fish together a lot more back then and, and we would definitely interact a lot more. Um, and then, uh, I brought him on to the hook one pro staff before, um, I ultimately sold hook one and, and moved on and he 
constantly was like, dude, I have no idea how you do what you do. And to be honest with you, I was just like, I was obsessed. I didn't, I sacrificed everything, right. family life, personal time, my own fishing time. And now I'm saying. Um, my phone's going in the drawer and it's family. To the best of my ability, around six o'clock, phone goes down. I put it away when everybody's asleep, when the kids are in bed and Christy's asleep. And then I'll get my phone back out in some cases when I need to catch up and I'll do some social media interaction and post some videos and get stuff yeah. squared away. But that time I'm trying to box out is like that's family time and not penetrate that bubble as much as I possibly can. And dude, it just makes it so much easier to grind better and a harder, excuse me, and more efficiently when I'm in the bubble. You know what I'm right. saying? So yeah, I mean, I had issues like that when I got out because I think I think a lot of military guys, you know, like everybody wants to talk about, you know, the, you know, the war and all these things and like PTSD and, and I'm not saying they're not, they're not, they're all obviously real, but I think the hardest part for all of us is like learning what to do with ourselves when we get out because like the issues I have is like like I always had something to work for, I always had something I could put myself into, and then when I got out, it's like it was kind of over. And so, like, you know, when I get these hobbies, like fishing or jujitsu or whatever, I could never do anything like just half ass. Everything had to be like 100%, 110, 120%. And it's like, uh, and, 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 and like, and what's wrong with like most militaries guys that we're very used to putting like family, loved ones, sometimes even our health. Like, we're so used to putting like a lot of those things on the side that we get so focused on like just a task, whatever that task is, that we become like tunnel vision that really isn't room for anything else. And then, Years later, like everything's a shit. You're an alcoholic. Uh, your wife, kids don't want anything to do with you because you've been absent for so long, and blah blah blah. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. Like you, like you get very tunnel vision and get very uh, task oriented and very focused on the job at hand, and and you kind of forget about your health, your family, your well being, and all the other things. And it can all add up and and, and bring a man down. And we've we've all seen that. We all we've all got friends who've you know, and, and we've all we've all kind of experienced that. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that um, you really, to, to me, the thing that I had the hardest time with that I didn't realize was was building up on me is that when I lost buddies that were on active duty, you, you started a process of grieving. You did your grieving. You put it in a box and you moved on. Right. The thing that was probably the hardest for me after I retired is that I lost 27, like, really, really, really close friends. I flew H-46s and then moved into Hueys, and the H-46 is the most dangerous aircraft in the military inventory since Vietnam. Right. Um, so I lost a lot of friends in that aircraft, training, real operational stuff, at home, overseas, all of the above. But I was young and then kind of moved through it, and then I got into you know a lot of special operators and stuff like that, became good friends of mine because we were the get them in, get them out guys, yeah. and I lost some good buddies doing that. But the hardest part for me was after I retired, how many guys that were committing suicide and yeah, 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 yeah. Dying, dying. And to me, and I know this is going to sound weird to some people, it may even sound weird to some people that served, but to me, there was this weird, like, there's a sense of honor associated with dying on active duty to where you, you, you were doing a mission, even if it was training, you were training to do a mission. And people are like, you sacrifice, you know, for your country and for protecting people's freedom and all of that notion that we tie 
up the cloak of, you know, justification in. What ends up ha happening is when it's after the fact, there's a sense of cowardice that goes with it. There's a sense of lack of heroism. There's a sense of disgrace and there's a sense of there's no honor associated with it. And what sucks about that is, is people don't understand how difficult it is to deal with not dealing with the stuff that you dealt with. Right, before. right, because right. When you're on active duty and you're being constantly fire hose in the face, you don't have time to deal with it. It's easier. But when yeah. the world goes from when you go from, you know, 90,000 to nothing and you come back, you know, have a harder time dealing with it. Like you said, your world's crumbling. You don't have the identity you once had. Your wife leaves you. You don't get to see your kids. They move back home to wherever they're from because 90% of the time people aren't from where they were serving. Right. And they end up with an identity that's associated with where they were stationed because that's where the contractor work is or anything that they might be able to find. The family moves back home and now you've got hopelessness sets in and you you don't feel like you're there for your kids. And I've seen it happen. So to me, that was the hardest part. And that was the part I had to have the help with is the yeah. dealing with the part about golly. And that's why I work as best I can with Heroes on the Water. And I'm planning on ramping that up this year. But because they really are saving people's lives by getting them out on the water and getting oh, them out, yeah. out of the hospitals and that kind of thing. And so to me, I focus so hard on the other stuff. I could not do the, any of that stuff. I had no time for volunteer work or that personal enrichment or spending a weekend at home and just being a family guy because I was committed every single weekend 50 weeks out of the year and took off like Thanksgiving and Christmas. And that was about right. it. And, and so I had to find a little bit better balance. And, you know, people call me and say, Hey man, I just don't think I can do three trails because this, this, and this, and this, this, and this. And I go, okay, then don't. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't, don't do it. <laughs> it doesn't work for you. You've already solved the problem. But I think a lot of times they're calling me, asking me for a way for me to fix the system to where it, it accommodates them. And I'm actually, I've worked on that. I'm doing the double events everywhere we can for this year. Uh, yeah, that's, so what I wanna, that's what I want to talk to you about. Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll move on to that, Chad. Uh, this is okay. a, a great conversation now, too. But, you know, COVID-19 comes in. Uh, it changed everything. It kind of put a, uh, you know, it just it just changed everything, right? We all had, like, it shut down May, shut down April. Uh, here we are, we're getting into June. We're looking at some things starting to open up. What is the plans right now uh, with salvaging and, and saving the rest of the season or, or making the rest, the rest of the season, whatever it's going to be like, what, what do you have in store for us as far as uh, what we can do with the rest of 2020? So what we're doing is in every place that we can, we are taking events that were postponed and we're rescheduling them. So that way we provide that opportunity. In addition to that, we want to, we, we decided to double up events in locations where the venue permitting and local state and even federal restrictions permitted so i was on the phone this morning from pretty much the time i got up until right before i called you called me dealing with state agencies and talking to people to find out what the restrictions are we're going to start updating the event pages to add in an addendum for anything specifically that are restrictions related to COVID 19 we have created a kvf best practices uh, overview that we're sending out and that we're going to get people to opt in for. Um, and we're we're like everybody else. We're having to adjust to the new way forward. But let me give you the Cliff Notes version of it. Okay. The Cliff Notes version of it is is we're doing a live cap uh, a cap is meaning virtual, 
and we're going to do the tournaments, checking in and checking out on Tourney X, so there's going to be no physical check-in required. And then the award ceremony is also going to be virtual. Now, at first, it was a little bit like, oh, man, that kind of sucked. But here's yeah. what it really boils down to. When you do an award ceremony in front of the guys you competed against, there is something great about that. You're getting that recognition in front of your peers. and But if you're doing it at a boat ramp or a pub or a restaurant or a, or a coliseum or whatever event we set up, and you're really only getting the recognition in front of those guys, and it kind of falls by the wayside. So what we've decided to do is to have every winner and probably top three or four in most events go on to the weigh-in with Scott Butcher. And, you know, we'll probably give the, the fourth place, third place, and second place guy like five minutes apiece, but then give like the winner like 30 minutes to an hour to talk about their experience, to talk yeah. about the sponsors, to talk about the, the venue and the fishery. So we've actually gone virtual on everything for the foreseeable future. We're going to mail the checks out and we're going to mail the trophies out. Now, I've had to back off some because we're 100% flat on revenue right now. So I've had to drop down from 10 checks. I really like recognition. It's one of our core principles, community, opportunity, recognition, and education. Right. But I just can't afford 10 checks per, per tournament and then double the tournaments and then double that expense when most of our sponsors are hovering around 50% of their original commitments. Some are a little bit higher. Um, tourism bureaus are all having to cut funding. Basically, memberships have gone almost flat with the exception of a little bit of burst right around the time that the state challenges kick off. Normally, we get a big bow wave of memberships right before the national championship, but because the national championship moved to the fall, we had already spent the $60,000 to put it on, and then the memberships didn't come and the level that they normally came. And so we've lost out on the membership revenue, sponsorship revenue, the merchandise sales are down. And so we've luckily we got the PPP, which only covers staff pay. Um, we're working with our landlord and we're going to get through it. Right? right. But we've had to make some adjustments like we we knew that because we didn't know when we were going to come out of it, trying to run the Pro Tour Championship in July when we may not even get back to fish until June was going to be silly. And luckily the crystal ball right. was dead on for that. So we just had to consolidate the pro tour back into the, into the, um, into the real into the regular trail. And now we have one trail. We have one challenge series and we have a trail series championship, a challenge series championship and a national championship all in one location. We were trying to do the partner championship series. And then when I found out about the fact that Joshua Booth is doing the, all-American kayak classic i'm like well that's what i was trying to accomplish and this is a testament to what i've said all along i'm not trying to do everything i want everything to be available if somebody else is doing it i would just as well like to put my my support behind that and help them be successful and so um we just threw our support behind that we actually took the five thousand dollars we had budgeted for that and gave it to josh and said hey we'd like it to do something to promote kbf but we're really giving it to you to do with what you want and that's the way forward is to do less events better. Um, I hate it when we have one trail event that's really well done and I'm there and everything feels like premium. And then we've got another one. We had to have the partner run it and granted they're in an isolated location and they don't get as much exposure. And then they feel like, man, how was this trail up here? And we felt like this. So moving forward, I'm going to do eight, nine, maybe 10 events 
and they're going to be what they are. We're going to do some staples that we do every year because we know we're going to get good turnout, and we're going to move the other ones around, and everything else is going to be partner-related events. So we partner with the club, help right. them get better sponsors, help them get better support, help them with oversight and judging and the administrative side of it, but we're just not going to do – 30 events it's just not sustainable especially you know? and i was thinking when i was thinking when, when this first started going down i was talking to uh, brian from paddle and finn like and great it's not my place to tell anyone what to do but it's just like i was just like in a confused state of like you know like you know what are they gonna do like how are we gonna you know salvage not, not, that, not that this is the most important thing obviously people's health and safety is the most important thing but still it's a fishing podcast so that's what i'm gonna talk about uh so you know when i was wondering and it's, it's good to hear you do that but i was like well, i was like the best bet is to lean on those uh those local, uh, those local, those local clubs like New York KBF that you, you know, you, we do a great job up here, like leaning on them and leaning on some of the other ones to kind of help, you know, carry that load. Cause I, I know that there's been changes in what we're looking for as far as uh, what percentage of whatever tournament can make it can qualify for the KBF. I know that's 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 increased a little bit at the uh, the local events. Is there anything else you see with like like using the local events to really like to push the KBF and, and like. Like I said, you can't you, you can't no longer take it all on your shoulders anymore right now. Yeah, it's just not possible. I think I think that us putting um, a good payout booster up for the All American Kite Classic to where all of the partner events are, are qualifiers for that yeah. um, is a good is a good solution. I right. think that um, that having the carrot on the stick that all the partner events culminate there is one big thing. The other thing is that all the partner events are still going to be national championship qualifiers. Right. And people can talk all the smack they want to, good, bad, indifferent, whichever way. There's no event like the KBF national championship. It's the granddaddy of them all. Um, and even after somebody else pays out $100,000 and does all, it's still the biggest tournament. It's still the one that created all of what's out there. You know, people can, they're going to bash me for saying this, um, you know. You can get your feelings hurt, but you can't change the truth. And the truth is the Kayak Bass Fishing National Championship set the tone. Some people are like, oh, it's too easy to qualify. It's not designed to be hard to qualify. It's not an elite event. And I love to hear this statement, and I'm going to say this up front. Everybody that says this is a moron. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say it again so that way I don't have to text later and go, I apologize for what I said. So say, say So when I say this, I'm saying it, and then I'm going to reinforce that I'm saying it, so nobody expects me to, to apologize for it. Right on. If you believe this, you're a moron. If you believe anything we do to try to grow the numbers for the national championship as a money grab, you're a moron. If you think that anything that we change, oh, they're just trying to grow numbers, and here's I'm going to explain why you're a moron. So if you've been a moron in the past, you have an option to no longer be a moron because I've explained it to you, or you can continue to be, but I'm not going to engage these people anymore. If I have a $75,000 guarantee, the way to grow the numbers is to make it an open. How many freaking people do you think would be in the event if it had a $75,000 guarantee, a $300 entry, and it was open to everybody in the country? How many people? Uh, a good bit. <laughs> Double what we have in it by doing right, the qualification. Right, right. But the reason we do that, and that's why you're a moron if you think that anything, like I doubled the mayhem thing and made it 50% qualification. And everybody's like, oh, it's just a money grab. They're trying to pad the deck. It's 100% pass through, bro. How's that a money grab? Secondly, we do the national championship the way we do it for qualifications. 
so that people have to go fish partner events. They have to fish the challenges. They have to do the things to learn how to fish yeah. so that we don't have a thousand people show up and every other fish is backwards, crooked, upside down, no identifier. You know how much of a crap show it would be if we did the national championship and there wasn't a qualification process and you didn't have to go through a little bit of a vetting process? Right. The other thing that it avoids is it avoids a whole bunch of people like pros that say, hey, this would be a good opportunity. I ain't got nothing else going on. I'm going to throw my hat and ring and go fish the national championship. If they're going to do that, they have to invest in our community. They have to go out and fish some online events. They have to go out and fish a trail event. They have to go out and fish a partner event. There's no free passes. I've had pros call me mad as a wet hornet. What do you mean I can't just fish the national championship? I qualify for the Bassmaster Classic. I'm not qualified for the thing. Did they godfather you into the Bassmaster Classic or did you earn it? Well, I earned it. Well, then you got to earn ours too, you know? So the argument to me is is garbage when you say we're just trying to blow numbers up. I'm trying to increase opportunity, and I'm trying to create an initial incentive in a time when things were tough. That's why right. I did Mayhem. If you don't like it, you ain't got to. Exactly. And I'm, o- I'm also going to continue to grow the national championship to an every man tournament. Every person that has ever won the national championship is a household name in kayak fishing. That cannot be said for any other series or event out there. And I'm not trying to throw any shade. It's not what I'm doing. It. What I'm saying is the Kayak Bass Fishing National Championship is what it is, and it'll stay what it is for the reason that it does what it does. You can come from relative obscurity, and nobody knows who you are. You win the KBF National Championship, and everybody in kayak fishing knows your name. Yeah. And it makes getting sponsorships easier. It makes moving forward easier. It makes you doing the things that you need to do. I'm not as much proud of what the national champions have accomplished by the money that they've won as the relationships that it's led to because of the notoriety that they've got, you know? Right. Mike Elsey quit his job and is fishing full time. Matt Ball has picked up numerous sponsorships that he has made more in sponsorship dollars after the national championship combined than he made in winning the national championship. Uh, the first time, Dwayne Taff has sponsorships. Kurt Smith has sponsorships. All of these guys are Angler of the Year. The winner of the 10, which for the last three years has been the same person, all of those guys have become household names because KBF promotes the anglers. It's not an accident. We spend sixty-five dollars to $72,000 on the national championship episode. We spend almost 40000 on the 10 episode. People say, how do you spend that much? Well, there's airtime. There's the travel cost of the camera guys, there's there's day rates, there's their lodging, there's the editing rate for editing a, a production that's that big. It's freaking expensive. And then you pay for the airtime, you know, to put it on TV. Yeah. All right. Chad, we lost you for a second, no big deal. But you're just talking about you were just talking about how great the uh the national champion, like and just what it's done for anglers and uh, the, you know, the money that goes into promoting the anglers and how it's all like, it, how it's all come to be about the angler uh, at the end. Well, I think a lot of people say it's not a national championship because it's too easy to qualify for or it's not elite enough. It's not designed to be elite. The right. qualification process is there so that you know the rules, you've used the rules and you don't screw it up in a, an event that big. And so that we don't have a crap show when a thousand people show up that don't know the rules and we have to DQ as many fish as we approve. Yeah. The national championship is the anybody 
anybody can be successful and and basically use the national championship uh, as a springboard moving forward. The guys at MSK8 knew who Matt Ball was before he won the national championship. Nobody else in kayak fishing really did. Now he's a household name. Kurt Smith's is a household name. Right. Mike Elsie had not even fished a KBF event. He qualified through the trail series or through the challenges. His only live event was to go to the challenge series championship at Toledo Bend the year before. And then he won the national championship. And now he's a household name qualified for the 10. We promote the heck out of him. Everybody knew who Russ Snyder's was locally. He went out and won the angler of the year, the trail series championship that really put his name out there. Then the 10, and then he's followed that up with a, a Hobie win and some high places and other events. And, but that's the idea is the idea is that we want to build these guys profiles so they can make a living or come pretty dang close to it doing what they love. And so I've had to back off on a lot of the things that I'm doing so I could focus more on that, focus more on writing blogs about these guys or helping them write a blog about themselves so we can share it and build their profile, helping them shoot videos, going out and shooting videos with them, doing the things that we really need to do to focus on taking care of the anglers that we've got instead of trying to just attract more. I have the same philosophy for my YouTube channel. I care more about the 83,000 subscribers that have already committed to following me than the next 17 to get to 100 or the next 117 to get to 200. And I kind of look at KBF the same way. I'm not focused on grabbing new numbers, numbers, numbers as much as getting what we've done better. Right. And that wasn't always the focus. As a business, you have to set um, the statement to a point. You have to set the, the, the bar to a point where you're sustainable. So I'm a lot more, I'm a lot more, um, um, focused now on doing less better than more worse, you know? Right, and, right. And then taking that additional time and focusing it on creating content that gets people excited about kayak fishing, that gets people saving them hard-earned money and pointing out things that they can save money by learning those lessons earlier and I enjoy creating content. That's really what I enjoy the most. All this other stuff is work. Like it's <laughs> work. And so um, I would I would tell you that we're trying to double the opportunities everywhere we can for the rest of the year so that if the person wants to be competitive for the 10 or the trail series championship or something like that, they've got better opportunities by killing two birds in one location. So we're doubling up in every location that we possibly can. All of that information will be updated as soon as it is at kayakbass.com forward slash schedule, or you can go to the homepage, click on the drop-down tab, click events, and it'll take you to the schedule page. Um, so that's what we're focused on for the rest of the year is knowing that people's schedules, finances, right. vacation times are getting compressed. So we're doubling up the opportunity for you to go to yeah. multiple trails in location. And then if you can go to two locations, you can get four trails in, which actually right. allows you to call one for that, for your angle of the year standings. And I would love to have the most heavily contested trail series championship qualification for the 10 that we've ever had. I'd like it to come down to a 20 way tie for 11th place. And people are like, pulling their hair out. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, I'd right, like right. it to be so volatile at the end that you don't even know what the damn deal is 
with um, the, the who's going to be in it until the final day because it's so competitive. Right. I'd like it to where Angle of the Year is not even decided until the event's over and we crunch the numbers on the backside. And when we have the Angle of the Year announcement, it's not a foregone conclusion with people going, yeah, that guy's got it. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. That's the competitive environment that we're trying to create. Yeah. I mean, I, I like it because uh, I, I guess like one more question and then I'll like we'll wrap this thing up. But like and maybe you've already answered it. I know that you like I know you guys are looking into all these areas and, and like there's a lot of unknowns. And like so my, my issues uh, with this coming up, uh, you know, as far as like what I can do like tournament wise, because I, I love doing a lot of tournaments. And, um, you know, I'm in the Northeast and I was a little, you know, it's I, I like what you guys are doing. But like it was like well, I was thinking about like because the, the next one for me would be. Uh, in uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I'm just like, I don't know what it's gonna be like down there. I don't know what's gonna be open. I don't know if I'm gonna really get down there a week prior to pre-fish. I don't know. I might have to go there because only like four or five hours away. It might be a, a one or a day and a half trip. Um, are you guys really, are you guys looking into that? Like, yes. You know, like, like all the other things that go with like the, the, yeah. the logistics part. Yeah, we have regional coordinators and we have local tournament coordinators that are our boots on the ground. Um, okay. And we've gotten pretty good experience in most of the places that we go um, to get most of that information. And again, that's why I will say the event page on Kayak Bass Fishing, when you click on the schedule, there's an event page and there's an event link that takes you all of the information we can gather for each location that makes it easy on the angler is all consolidated in that event page. Tourney X will link back to the event page. The basic overview is on Tourney X, but the details are on the event page on Kayak Bass Fishing. Dot com. By and large, you can just search the name of the event and it'll take you to it. But you can also click on the drop down and type Bass Fishing 2020 events and you'll see the schedule. And then on the schedule page, there's a link to each event under the event. Okay, awesome. Awesome. Well, there's not much. I mean, I just wanted to hear, like, I know there's a lot of changes. Uh, you know, I hear a lot of them just we're doing like, you know, we're, we're kicking off our uh, our first live tournament in the New York KBF this weekend. Uh, well, actually, well, it's, it is the first live event. The other ones were, but, but I mean, like, we, we definitely, I know from us, and I know you know a little about the, the Newark KBF, but we definitely appreciate some of the changes because we were, we're all, like, we all want to, we, we all love this sport, we all want to keep doing it, and we just didn't know what was going to happen, but we've we've seen what the, you know, what KBF has done for the, uh, you know, the local local trail events, and you know, the, some of the things we can get there as far as increasing the percentage of who can qualify for the KBF uh, and, and things like that. So we really appreciate it. And I'm really glad I have you on so you can clear some things up. And then, goddamn, we went down a few rabbit holes on the yeah, way. Man. But I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Before we go, is there anyone you want to thank real quick that's just making life easier, whether it's fishing or just life in general? Yeah, my wife, Christy, and then obviously my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be able to do what we do. And, uh, yeah, man, I'm not ashamed. And uh, I'm also not – you know, there's a lot of guys out there scared to death to thank their wife because they don't want to come across like some kind of big wuss or whatever. But I'll be honest with you, man, my newfound peace is because of her and because of him. And uh, they deserve the credit. And she led me back to him. So she gets credit for that, too. You know what I mean? So it's right. uh, that's it, man. All my sponsors, obviously, I thank them as much as I can. Uh, they know who they are. Uh, if you want to know who they are, you can go to kayakbassandshow.com forward slash sponsors my website for my tv shows and they're all listed there i've never kind of hid behind who takes care of me uh if you want to if you want to poo-poo on me because i got sponsors then just get up earlier work harder and stay up later that's all i got to say about that all right well chad i appreciate you coming on the show man Likewise, uh, man. Thank good you. luck i'll do my best to make it to all the events i can and uh we'll talk again in the near future all right all right sounds good man appreciate you brother bye later